0: Listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmayer. My guest for episode 117 is Chris McQueen, best known as longtime guitarist for Snarky Puppy, a fusion band that's been active since 2004. What you're right now hearing is a song called Rally that Chris wrote for his band Fork, F-O-R-Q, from their current album Four from 2019. We're going to be discussing the song m Theory." also from that album that he wrote with keyboardist Henry Hay. Then we're going to look at another recent project, a guitar duet album that he did with Matt Reed called Western Theater. That's from 2017. We're going to discuss the title track from that. And then we're going to look at one of the first songs that Chris has written for Snarky Puppy. The song is called Coven. The album is Immigrants, also from 2019. We'll conclude by listening to a song called Strut, by the self-titled album by Faux Destroyer, one of Chris's rock bands. That album was from 2013. For more information, please see chrismcqueen.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support this effort and hear all the episodes ad-free, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I'll have played a little bit of a Rally by Fork from the new album, Four, that you wrote. Right. Yes, which often I push people to use the early hit or something that they're well-known for. I was just actually listening to some Oso oh Closo, your band from the 2006
1: to 2012, something like that? Yeah, I think it's like 2005 to 2010.
0: Okay. All right,
1: you had a reunion. There was a reunion. That's I was counting that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, you know, spotty reunions here and there. But yeah, essentially 2010. So you started... There was a singer,
0: but then you co-wrote everything with him as the lead guitarist. Is that sort of how you started?
1: Yeah, that was sort of our approach. Adrian Hewlett, basically like self-taught kind of musician guy who played in a lot of bands. He was actually more of a drummer. And then he kind of like played piano on the side and was really into singer songwriter stuff and started to write his own songs. We had mutual friends in the jazz program at University of North Texas. And we started just, yeah, hanging out, writing songs and kind of felt like it wasn't really a finished Oso Closo song until the two of us had both kind of contributed to it.
0: So I'm just trying to get the overall shape of the career here to just to orient folks. You were writing stuff for the jazz program before that. Did you play in bands before that or you were just kind of academic musician?
1: So I started playing guitar when I was 10. I went to this natural ear music camp here in Austin run by Mike Murphy, who has a real talent for collecting young people and getting them excited about music and kind of like showing them enough rules to like figure it out, but then have enough freedom to kind of learn how to improvise. And I did that rock and roll camp when I was 13. And from there I joined kind of like an offshoot band from that camp called Redheaded Stepchild. So from like thirteen until fifteen or sixteen I was playing around Austin in this like kid band basically. And then there were other like little rock bands that I played in through high school and Oso Close was kind of my first band after deciding that I was gonna be into jazz. I was like playing in these bands and I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn jazz and everything else is not as good as jazz. So I started just like studying that exclusively in college. And then oh, so close, I started hanging out with Adrian, like I was saying, and, we're, you know, kind of realizing like, wait, I I like other kinds of music. I grew up listening to Nirvana and the Beatles, and I don't want to just throw all that away. I like rock bands. So kind of like started to combine those two worlds musically.
2: Yeah,
0: that I think is a good overall theme for this is when you think of fusion music, When I first heard that that was what, oh, combine rock and jazz is cool and those make this thing from the 70s with these weird chords that is, it's not like the best elements of both those things as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes Uh, it is. Yeah, I feel
1: like, yeah, the word fusion, you know, the bands that I play in, it's kind of like this dirty word because you struggle so much to convince people that you are playing a cool kind of music that can't be pigeonholed. Because people just want to, you know, like figure out like, what genre is this? But honestly, objectively, I think the word fusion is useful because it is just literally combining different genres. But as you say, I mean, it's like so often it becomes like the worst of both of those genres. So I think those of us in what should be called fusion bands are just like, don't call us that. We hate that word. But really, that's what it is. We just want to be a good version of that.
0: Yeah, I think Modesky Martin and Wood maybe was the first thing that I heard that was kind of had some underground cred that like, oh, these are jazz guys, but it's groove music. Yeah. is as popular as pop. I mean, that's what jazz was supposed to be in the first place is just bands playing for people so they can groove. And, you know, so it became this more right. esoteric intellectual thing at some point.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, that's why genre labels are so silly, because it really is like when you listen to old jazz music, it wasn't necessarily like head and then everyone in the band takes a long thoughtful solo and then play the head again like that's the convention that started to develop but a lot of early jazz music was yeah just like feeling good having a good time dance hall music not necessarily about improvising as much and then yeah it became like this very artistic approach to like thinking of melodies off the top of your head and then even thinking of like nothing is going to be worked out ahead of time it's all going to be improvised so it can go all the way in that direction. But yeah, I mean, on some level, like the music that Modesky Martin and Wood plays, it is jazz. I mean, it just depends on how you define it. So
0: after then with Oso Closo and that morphed into Faux Destroyer just by the lead singer leaving, talk about how this jumped to the big time, to Snarky Puppy.
1: <laughs> well, it wasn't actually in that order. So I started playing in Snarky Puppy basically around the time that Oso Closo started. I started college with Mike League the leader of the band, we all kind of came in together and several of the other members of the band came in the same year or just a year or two ahead. And we basically just started jamming and we would play a lot of Mike's arrangements of standards and then a couple of his originals and then that kind of morphed into playing around town. I think Mike always had kind of a vision that he maybe wasn't sharing immediately with everyone around him because he didn't want to freak people out, but he kind of always had like a vision of where he wanted this band to go. Further than where it was, so yeah, that band was starting to tour and playing a lot around the Dallas-Fort Worth-Denton area around the time that Oso oh Close was happening. And there were even a lot of gigs that we played, like dual headliner Oso oh Close, oh Snarky Puppy. One of us would headline, and then we'd switch off, and the other person would headline. So there was like a moment in time where those bands were kind of in the same. I mean, those bands are nothing alike, but just because of the people that were in them, we had like a similar little artistic audience. From Also Closer, I kind of always had, like, my own rock band on the side. So Also Closer kind of dissolved and did kind of reform into Photo Destroyer. So that was my thing that I was kind of focusing on on the side from all, you know, and then I was kind of trying to stay involved with Snarky Puppy as much as I could. But also, at some point, Mike moved to New York. And so a lot of the band's development started to happen. Like, they're playing these weekly residency gigs. So a lot of the band was New York based. Then I would just do, like, occasional tours. Starship is like a giant family.
0: Okay, I was wondering why there were three guitarists there, but then I was looking at live versions of the one we're going to be talking about today, and it didn't look like you were in either of them. So, may, or or at least definitely not
1: one of them. Yeah, what happens is basically everyone in the, in the family is on all of the albums for the most part, and then for the tours they put together like a nine or ten piece group based on people's availability, and then tour for however long and then switch out when necessary so i mean it started off as essentially like out of necessity it's just difficult when people are really busy with a lot of different bands so i think mike i'm just speaking for him at this point but i would imagine he basically had a choice where it was like i can either wait to book a tour until i guarantee that every single person in this band is available for the entirety of the tour Or I can book a tour and I can just replace people as needed. You know, if someone just isn't going to be available, like you can't just stop. You kind of have to keep the thing going, especially early on with a band.
0: All right. So at some point, he starts a side project with Henry Hay, the keyboardist, which is Fork 2014, I see is their first album. You came in for the second album. Is that right?
1: Yeah, they started this band with Adam Rogers, who is an amazing guitar player and someone that i admired all throughout high school and college i guess i didn't really think of it as like a side project as much as just like an all-star super group henry hay had that band rudder that was super awesome very influential on snarky puppy and then you know adam rogers was just the giant of jazz guitar in our circles and then jt i think even at that point he wasn't playing with snarky puppy that much he was more just like super awesome dallas guy played with rh factor Yeah, it was kind of like a super group. And then at some point, Mike called and asked if I wanted to play in Fork. I was like, you mean Adam Rogers' band? I guess, yeah. Like with him instead of him? I don't understand. I joined for the second album, and it actually turned out to be a really good mix. I had done some stuff with Henry before, like recorded for other artists with him producing, and I played live with him here and there, but we hadn't really like... Like actually trying to write together and produce together and it turned out super easy because we both have very similar tastes and we both like weird stuff. Like kind of like we were talking about before, we're not necessarily into a lot of typical fusion stuff. We wanted to make something different. So it was a really easy kind of coming together stylistically And then for the latest album, now you don't even have Mike in it. So
0: it's it's now you're taking more of a co-leadership with Henry or is it just kind of, there's
1: only four of you. So on some level, it is all four of us. We're all, we view it as a band and we all write for it and sacrifice potential other tours and projects for it. But yeah, I would say from the day-to-day kind of like planning and working out stuff, it is a lot of me and Henry doing it. Yeah. Before Mike left, I wasn't as much doing that stuff and it felt but that's also because a lot of the reason why mike had to leave was because he was so busy that we were basically playing like six gigs a year so it pretty much wasn't a band there wasn't really anything to work on and then at some point henry basically told him like we need to replace you because we need to be a band once that happened we decided to really try to make a go of this and make more albums and book a lot of tours Yeah, ever since then, I've been very much involved in all of the operations of the band. So this has all been building up to playing the first song. Can you give us a quick introduction to
0: M-Theory before we insert it in full?
1: Yeah, M-Theory is a song that I wrote the first part of it, which is kind of the main theme. And it's one of those ones that just kind of came to my brain out of nowhere. Like I just kind of realized halfway through a thought that I was already singing this sort of theme. And a lot of times that happens, I'm like, did I steal that from something? Is that something already? But after enough like thinking about it, I decided that it was something original and took the idea down. And then I couldn't really finish it. I couldn't figure out how to start it or end it. And then Henry came to Austin, where I live, and we had like a powwow for a few days and finished each other's ideas. And this was one of them that he kind of took and like created this very expansive emotional journey through harmony that happens throughout this guitar solo and then a keyboard solo and then it comes back to the main theme that it starts with.
0: So yeah, I was trying to think myself, kind of like an early 80s Genesis thing, like Silver Rainbow, sort of invisible touch, I don't know, is what I was kind of hearing. Although with that tone, it should be like the last song on the album. It's so epic and dramatic.
1: Yeah, well, we almost wanted to make it the first song in a way because it starts off so crazy. But yeah, I could see that. We were definitely feeling a lot of like 80s things while we were making this album. And that Genesis synth world is absolutely part of my childhood. It's funny because a lot of like the 80s synth stuff, I actually hated as a kid. And then now I love it. So, you know, I guess you grow into things. Was there more attention paid on this album to tones, you know, as opposed to the previous album? I mean, certainly
0: like the duck people song, which I see is the most popular is like all eight bit synth sounds but i heard on several of the songs here like very deliberate like okay now you're going to do one guitar riff with a tremolo effect and then the next one is going to be a little you know some other what
1: is the thing so it's a very chorused sound with octave pedal it's all of that it's like at least two choruses and then an octave pedal both up and down i put a lot of subtle vibrato on things pretty often one of the things that has led me to like where I am at the moment with guitar tone is getting kind of really into five years ago or so. I just kind of got into the idea. I was working on making a lot of like main stage sounds for a couple of different projects and got really into sense. And I, I have a couple of since I'm by no means like a person who knows all of the details, but just like the idea of like being able to take a simple sine wave and affect it and modulate it just a little bit until it sounds beautiful was really cool to me so like i started to think about guitar pedals instead of putting on your chorus effect and it's like zero to 60 now you have chorus on i started to think about like what if you do like incredibly slow chorus like i have this moog uh mini fuger pedal that goes so slow that it basically freezes so it just sounds like a tone or you can set it to be like just vibrato instead of chorus so like just extremely shallow slow vibrato it doesn't really sound like you have an effect on it. it just sounds good so i started to get kind of into that idea even on the previous fork albums just recording like just a tiny bit of tremolo just a tiny bit of vibrato tiny bit of chorus tiny bit of delay all of that kind of together in a thoughtful way can create this really cool thick sound and i do a lot of recording into two amps at the same time which sometimes we use both sometimes we just use one So there's a lot of experimentation that happens in the studio and I've just kind of done it now for so many years that there's certain things that I know are going to work and then I kind of tweak it from there. I got really obsessed with just tweaking, you know, knobs on the pedals. So I've I've started to put like little rubber, like if you get rubber feet from Home Depot and you kind of cut them into rings, I started to put those on all the knobs for like foot grip so you can just like adjust just a tiny bit. Ah. And then there's these things specifically made for that called Wingman by a company called option knob they look like these weird little plastic wings that you put on there and then you can like just very easily affect so it's kind of like you have a effect pedal for any knob you want so i'm just kind of like just got really into the idea of like instead of just turning pedals on and off just kind of like adjusting them slightly as the song progresses with my feet all that is to say yes there's a lot of effects on that guitar
0: (laughs) Well, and I was very interested in how you get this to sing, that it's a pretty straight, you know, just walking quarter notes line. It makes sense when you say that, that it was going through your head as a vocal line. Yeah because it's very rare I just you know throughout your soloing I mean certainly you can play very fast but you know it's not Jeff Beck it's not you're just not very noodly compared to like it's it's much more maybe it's the jazz thing that it's a clear individual tones as opposed to if Steve Hackett was playing this line it would be like you'd be very strong vibrato
1: Yeah that's interesting I guess I think of jazz as being more noodly but I guess it just depends on how you What jazz you're listening to.
0: Right. Of course, jazz is usually more notes, but like in terms of the hitting a single note, yeah, and how much you're bending and as opposed to having heavier gauge strings that you don't bend as much,
1: it's more just less hammer-ons, but more just playing fast individual no, that makes sense. I actually hadn't thought about that in that way before. That makes sense because there definitely were several years of studying jazz and like the way that kind of traditionally learned guitar or jazz, which is like, I mean, it's silly, but like basically you never use open strings. You never bend. You get the cleanest sound possible. And that's jazz guitar. And it's sort of funny that that's still kind of the way that it's thought. in some, I mean, I haven't been to school in 14 years now. So I don't know how it is now in jazz college. Hopefully it's a little more open-minded. And I had a very open-minded guitar teacher, Fred Hamilton at North Texas, extremely open just to whatever you want to do. But there's still this pervasive culture of like, yeah, but if you can't play like this, then you're not really playing jazz. So like everyone's trying to get this super clean tone. And I do love that. Like I genuinely love Jim Hall, West Montgomery, very clean tone guitar playing. And I went through a major phase of, of doing that stuff. So it makes sense that that would be there as part of my playing even still even though i've kind of like meshed it now into more guitaristic playing that's definitely part of it
0: let's play one little bit where we get some very heavy synth chords and you're doing there's some weird guitar effect
1: You've entered a new phase of the solo here. I mean, it's mainly tremolo. I'm trying to remember exactly how... I think it might be going through two different amps, and one of them is tremolo, and the other one's not. So you're not string
0: scraping or something?
1: I think that's slide going up and down. Okay. I mean, it could be string scraping. Like, when you have that much tremolo and reverb on, it like kind of doesn't matter exactly what the origin note is. It's more of an effect anyway, but I'm pretty sure that's either slide going up and down... Yeah, I think it's like going up and down with like, you know, just playing lots of notes. But the main thing is changing the tremolo. Like, so I set the tremolo depth like as hard as possible so that it's on off on off and then change the time of it. And then I think we either panned it around or maybe that was just something that happened because we we're going through two different amps and then a lot of reverb, a lot of delay. I think I was also changing the delay time, too. And this is sort of the kind of stuff that I got into a lot with Faux Destroyer. Oh, So Close, I was very, like, set in the sounds that we made, and I was obsessed with Brian May, and we just, like, had this sound, or I was like, this is my sound in this band. And then Faux Destroyer was kind of a reaction to that musically, where I was like, I'm going to open things up and try a lot of new things. And I've always been very into Radiohead and the way that they use sound And, you know, just open things up on the guitar where it's like, yeah, maybe you turn an analog delay feedback all the way up until it starts looping back on itself and freaking out. And then you kind of adjust the knobs. This was how I got into using the wingman and all the different foot things, because I would spend like half a Photo Destroyer show on my knees, adjusting pedals while my guitar is feeding back and doing that sort of thing. And (laughs) no one understood what I was doing. Like even my wife, I would play a show and I'd get off stage and... She'd be like, were your pedals like broken the whole time? Why were you on your knees? Like didn't understand that I was making music by changing the knobs. So that's why I got really... In- and that and also the fact that you have to stop playing in order to do that. So got really into the foot stuff. That's part of that too. Like that Radiohead kind of like ambient texture that kind of builds and shapes a song. And I started kind of incorporating that here and there into Snarky Puppy, at least for the solos and some of the moments of certain songs that want to build and... Just kind of like being like the textured DJ kind of guy in the band sometimes is like very gratifying.
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about the overall shape of the song. And you had said that you, even though the intro
1: is a bunch of keyboard noises, that you arranged and produced it. So what does that mean? Well, basically, Henry is is super awesome at getting really cool synth sounds. And like, he's someone who could actually talk about different synths for a very long time. And he's he's really into old vintage gear. And he has all that stuff at home. So basically, he just like recorded like all of this stuff and sent it to me. Like I had like something like 10 tracks and I just listened through for hours, (laughs) probably. Okay. So in post, not coaching him. No, no. Basically, just deciding like, okay, here's the moment that sounds like the beginning and then sort of fade this guy in, put that guy out. And yeah, just sort of post, put it together into what felt like the appropriate intro.
0: So I, if I'm, I'm remembering correctly, there's not drums for the first while. Yeah that's kind of what shapes the movement throughout the song is where do the drums come in? And the fact that he's doing again, this kind of big reverb snare, you know, very basic part, how much do you had to wrestle him to the ground to simplify to that point? Or he's just very intuitive.
1: No, not at all. So JC is awesome for Fork in particular, because he is someone who loves production and he loves simplicity. I mean, he is capable of playing probably anything And, you know, in live shows, a lot of what carries the energy of the live show is his ability to really drive the band and play this kind of a tangent. But he like he's incredibly dynamic, like he'll play so soft, but with so much energy and intention that it just pulls the audience in. And then he can also just blast off. So he'll, you know, he'll do a solo that's like takes you to a different place with his pure chops and ability. But in the studio and where we're like kind of approaching songs, he is all about simplicity and like what is the purpose of what I'm playing. He'll be the first person to play something simple. There's even been songs where I'll send him the demo with like my crappy little drum thing that I put into it. I'll be like, you know, obviously play whatever you want and he'll learn the part that I play and be like, actually I think this is cool. This is working and he'll learn my part and try to kind of do it justice. We did add the flanger effect onto that jason kingsland who was the engineer on this and me and henry were mixing it and that was something that we put on there we actually added four bars because it sounded so cool it was supposed to go as soon as the drums enter was supposed to be the next time around the melody but it sounded so cool just the drums so we're like okay we have to loop this and create four extra bars just to appreciate the drum sound jason's like amazing at getting sounds
0: Hey, we need to stop for a second for a sponsor break. You might think that emotional problems, depression, trauma, that these things actually help you be creative or write better songs, but usually they are just a blockage. But one thing I have found that actually helps is talking about your problems. And if you, like I have, have always avoided professional counseling, you might want to try BetterHelp Online Counseling, which lets you connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private online environment It's very convenient, secure, confidential, and affordable with financial aid available for those who qualify. BetterHelp makes use of 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. You schedule secure phone or video sessions plus chat and text with your therapist who could be a licensed professional counselor specializing in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, or self-esteem. It is super convenient to sign up, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. So, whatever you're going through, you don't have to go through it alone. If okay. your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time with no additional charge. BetterHelp is available worldwide. It's available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. So if counseling is something that you've always felt like maybe you should try, this really is a new way of doing it. And nakedly examined music listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code NEM. There is no point in procrastinating. Just go to betterhelp.com NEM. You simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, get you matched with a counselor you love. As betterhelp.com NEM. Discount code N-E-M. Let's shift gears here. As interesting as it would be to just talk, keep talking about Fork, let's move to Western Theater. So this is the title track to an album by you and Matt Reed. Do
1: you want to say a little before we hear it? Matt Reed is a fellow Austinite guitar player. He and I went to North Texas together. We didn't really start playing together until we both moved to Austin at different times And then started to kind of see each other around the scene. And at some point decided it would be cool to get together and write some songs specifically for Acoustic Duo, which is completely foreign to me and especially was then. But it turned out to be like a very interesting new kind of thing to try to do as a guitar player. So, yeah, we made this album of six songs uh, a couple years ago. We're actually about to record another one of six more songs pretty soon. And we should say you are on the left side and Matt starts the song on the right side. Thank you.
0: I was happy to see when I was trying to figure out, wait, which part is you, that there's a version of you playing, I think, all these songs on YouTube that you can just see this live, and I see you each have two mics, like that's not the actual version that's on the album, right? I wasn't sure. There were some things like a bum note that seemed like it was in both versions, but then I thought I was hearing like a little more intensity in some of the, like maybe at least some more engineering went on in the album version.
1: There is one video that it looks different, clearly better, that was not the album version. So it's possible that it was that one. But the other ones that just look like some dudes in a room, those are the album versions. I mean, we did combine some takes, like we would do like maybe three ish takes. And then if there were the part that we liked better from one or the other, we would try to combine them together. But in theory, that should be the same recording as those videos. I don't see why it wouldn't be. But yeah, those are the ones we don't try to like fix every mistake. But if there's like a part of a take that we like better, we'll do that. Now, just in terms of the sheer sound of the two of you, like at the
0: beginning, it sounds like, okay, he's got a little more of a traditional bright sound and then when your lead in quotes part comes in your reacting part that it's a little darker and it's more up there is that a matter of you know deliberately how you were mixing and engineering it do you know or is that just the kinds of guitars that you happen to have
1: (laughs) I guess it's probably a combination. A lot of it is the kinds of guitars that was a breed love acoustic that I, that was basically my only acoustic that I had at that point. Like I said, it was very foreign concept to me to even really do anything, you know, kind of like the kind of guy that plays electric and then has an acoustic. Whereas Matt Reed is like, has a beautiful sound on acoustic and it just sounds natural. Like he belongs on the instrument, but it's because he spent years trying different ones and different picks and getting super into those details in practicing on acoustic guitar since we've gotten this project going i've I've gotten more into it and I've got a Waterloo by Collings, which is a Austin company they make amazing instruments so that's what I use for this group now and it's a I think our sound is a little better like they mesh a little better together than the breed love did so maybe that's part of it. We did try to mix it. We didn't do like a ton of EQing. We kind of wanted to keep a minimalistic approach to it. So it's probably just the guitars. In terms of writing something like this together,
0: is it kind of... What we're hearing is the way it was written. In other words, Matt wrote that initial riff and then you wrote this counterpoint thing. And then as you progress through the song, eventually you're doing rhythm and he's doing lead and it passes back and forth.
1: Yeah, it does tend to be that way. We got together to write songs kind of on like an almost weekly basis for a long time, like maybe four or five months, which is more time that I've spent writing with anyone probably since college and shortly after college. Which has been really cool. We both happen to live in Austin and and it can work out when we're both in town. So, a lot of the writing is, as you say, like, you know, he'll start with his idea and then I'm like, okay, cool. Like, maybe this is the melody that could be over that. And then we go at it together. Sometimes it's easy and it's like, oh, that would obviously go to this place. And then we go from there. And sometimes we have four or five ideas that don't go anywhere and we have to regroup and figure out what the song really wants but for the most part the part that we're playing it's probably the part that we wrote there's a few exceptions on there like etude i want to say well yeah there's there's a lot of stuff in the song etude that would have been something that matt reed wrote that i learned and there's some things vice versa on different songs but yeah a lot of it is kind of like that like i'll play this you play that and then we'll make it work and we're very much into like the handing off vibe like handing off of rhythm versus lead it's like a very satisfying thing to do when you have only two acoustic guitars and no one, you know, no drummer or bass player backing you up. Like, okay, and then right there, we're going to switch.
0: Well, I like there's a lot of little sections where you're basically doing the lead, but then he'll put in two little harmonic notes at the end of the phrase or something to just, you know, be a little fill, you know, to kind of distribute it that way, just keep it
1: popping back and forth. It's a fun arranging challenge. I do a lot of arranging also like this last year I've been arranging for a string quartet out of Houston and it's taught me a lot about arranging with the instruments that you have and like how to make it all work which is also cool for two guitars because yeah it's like you'll have those moments where like this is where a drum fill would go what's the guitar equivalent of a drum fill or like a bass line leads you into the next phrase but how do you accomplish that with no bass a lot of it is just sort of natural it is also something that you kind of have to put some thought into if you want it to go well we haven't
0: talked at all about chord choices in music theory here let me just play a little bit it's really it's what i call the b section but it's still very toward the beginning of the song and how it gets back to the main part here Yeah, so just that little turnaround there. I mean, that still sounds pretty classical, but it's a really nice, I don't know, music theory kind of... (laughs) You've internalized your music theory enough that this just comes naturally, or is it like how most rock guitarists do it is they just try stuff (laughs) and like, oh, that kind of works as a turnaround, but this sounds a little more deliberate, like a little more classically trained.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's a combination, and I I did start as a self-taught rock guitar player, so most of the things that I connect with don't sound too heady but then you know there's a part of me that is is a music theory nerd so that's there too so it's like i'm both of those things are inside of my musical brain i always feel like it has to come out naturally it has to be based on your ear and it's sort of like that practice uh, all the theory that you can and then forget it i've heard that attributed to charlie parker like learn the changes and then forget them and i don't know if that's actually a charlie parker quote but that gets at it where it's like you know you want to like learn everything you can because like it's, it doesn't really pay off to be an uncurious person and be like, no, like anything with more than three chords is too heady. Because, like, why? I mean, that's just your own personal cultural bias with the music you grew up with. So I think being a curious person and like taking in as much different music as possible, as many different rhythms, as many different harmonies, melodies, styles, and then letting it come out how it comes out in that case. Yeah. I mean, there's this like basically like a flat two, major seven chord b flat major seven and a minor that then goes to an e seven so it's kind of like a tritone i mean you could think of it as like a tritone sub sort of relationship or like i'm pretty sure that's similar to like a neapolitan second i don't even know if that's the right thing it's been so long since i've had to think about that that's like a thing that is so satisfying so you know harmony is all about tension and release at least as long as you know like 99% of harmony unless you're talking about extremely avant-garde music and especially for tonal music if you're an a minor e seven is the dominant chord and that's the chord that is the strongest one that wants to take you back home so when you have like a b flat major seven tritone thing i mean the so like the obvious choice would be like b minor or b7 would be even more of a leading into the e7 so the b flats kind of like this tritone other thing that like if you were to look at the notes on the page there's like slight differences but they still kind of each one of those notes draws you to the next one which is why it's satisfying but the other way of saying that is like i mean in the moment that we wrote it it was probably just like all that happens real fast in your brain because you've played changes before enough to where you're like oh yeah like maybe this note goes to there and then i play this chord or even the dumb rock brain takes over and you're like what if i just put my hand right here and then it sounds cool there's nothing wrong with that, too, you know?
0: Some of the when I write something like that, you know, there, there's the obvious, okay, well, let's do the 5-7 the to the 1, you know, but then how do you build tension on it? Well, just try different notes, or maybe there's actually even something in your head, you know, your Manhattan transfer brain goes in of like, (laughs) how can I sustain something that to your mind sounds like it's not even in the chord just so you could have an extra tension to like resolve that thing. And then, oh, okay, that's just a flatted six, you know, whatever the thing is. But
1: yeah, I think that's the cool thing about music theory is that it can open you up to other possibilities and can give you new options that you haven't thought about, or maybe you can't quite hear yet inside your head. But then when you do hear it, you like it. So that's the cool thing about like I had this arranging teacher at North Texas named Paris Rutherford. And that was one of the things he said that really stuck with me. was like, you're trying to hear things that you can't hear yet. I think he said it differently, but like, that's the idea with complicated music theory It's you're not trying to write things that you don't connect with. You're trying to like find things that are interesting that maybe you wouldn't have thought of. Let me go back to 14 seconds in where you
0: come in very uh, last chord has a really nice sustain in it. Yeah, every time, you know, you end one of those phrases, and there's something extra yearning in it. Like, I feel like that's what... It's very easy for me when I'm messing around on guitar to just get bored of the same emotional buttons, you know, that there just aren't that many, like, deeply emotional changes that you can do. But if you can come up with something... It's actually much easier on piano, at least for me, because it's just laid out there, you know, you just... (laughs) add another two keys up and just keep going, you know, and then that's how thick chords happen. Is It's not a matter of figuring out what in the middle to add. It's a matter of extending it up indefinitely to a seventh, to a ninth, to an 11th, et cetera. But yeah, doing that on guitar, I guess part of that is I noticed when watching it that his part, Matt's part is mostly bar chords up, whereas you were taking advantage of the things that happen with open strings of just, oh, you know, that's a lot of what the guitar rock brain, that's how I come up with thick and interesting sounding harmonies. It's just, oh, if I put these two (laughs) fingers very high and I play everything else open,
1: like that's a thick thing that I've never heard before exactly. It's true. Yeah, I think that is the thing about guitar is You have to be more minimalistic, like find those four notes that give you that somewhat thick feeling, even though yeah, on piano you can play ten notes and Get so much more, but yeah, like if you can find one little like second in there, whether it's between two fretted notes or between a fretted note and an open string, then you get like some of that tension that you're looking for. But it is, I mean, yeah, I think experimentation, like, yeah, just literally like moving your fingers around that's such a big part of the way I grew up playing guitar, it's just like messing around, like, see what happens, and even if you don't know what it's called, Maria Schneider, the big band arranger. I remember she did a talk in North Texas and one of the things she said that stuck with me was if it sounds good, then you can just trust that there is some math behind it that makes sense. You don't necessarily even have to know what that math is. Like I think especially in the school mentality, like there's so much of this like, well, but what is it? Like, is it correct? But like, it doesn't really matter. Like if you like it, you like it. So like, and she was talking about Gil Evans arranging where they'll just be like, one instrument that's kind of has its own logic that doesn't necessarily even make sense with the other instruments but somehow it works and like yeah you can sit there and be like okay well technically it's like a major seven with a natural four but it's justified because of this and that and like that's cool if you're into that and that helps you to like expand your brain and think about music in different ways but like on the other end if you just think it sounds cool then it just sounds cool Right. And so much of that can be
0: just serendipitous that you write one line and you write another line and like, wow, how those crash into each other
1: is interesting. I have no idea really what's going on. But I feel like I'm a very like experiential writer or arranger where like I really have to hear it back and see if it works. And there's been times where I felt like that's lazy or not as good as someone who can really just picture the whole thing in their mind and know like, oh, no, this is perfect if you go deaf like beethoven you're not going to be prepared to <laughs> yeah exactly no it's so true and like because there have been things where i've been like I, I don't know if this is going to work and then you listen to it back and you're like okay no i need to drop that down an octave move that and then it clicks and you really feel it but i just like i just don't know if i like something until i hear it and i can't just look at something on the page and say like this is going to be pleasing or not or this should change there are musicians that can i think
0: yeah. Are you a believer in alternate tunings, which seems to be the, I don't know. It, it confuses me too much. <laughs> like it creates a new realm of serendipity of like, okay, I didn't know how to do these. Now Definitely. I have a new playground to mess around on, but like it's too hard for me to internalize. Like I drop D or something. Like there are a few things that are simple enough or open tuning, but how, how much are like on this record where was there open tunings involved in some of these acoustic ones?
1: I want to say there's not even drop D on this. I'm the same way. I'm so comfortable with... Well, no, I'm not that comfortable, I guess, is the thing. I'm, like, barely comfortable with regular guitar to the point where, like, if I start changing strings around, I'm, like, I'm lost. Like, I can't sit there and do the calculations. I mean, there's, like, embarrassingly enough, there's still moments in drop D where I'm, like, which fret is it again? And a lot of that, you just have to, like, remember the song. And <laughs> like this is where my finger goes. Because I'm just a dumb guitar player. But I do love open tunings, but it's more about, like, that exploration and composition. I didn't really experiment with them that much until hanging out with David Crosby a couple of times. And he's so into that. Like, that's kind of his whole thing. Like, he just tries different tunings and just, like, finds new interesting chords. And that's, like, his main thing. And then writes his songs around those chords. I haven't really explored it even as much as I think I will or should, but I will like sometimes I'll try like different tunings and then just experiment and see what happens. And I've got some song ideas here and there that explore that. It is difficult to write them for bands that are going to try to play them live. A lot of times what happens is you just don't play those songs because they're too difficult to fit into a set where you're going to have to retune your guitar. I think that's part of it too. It's just pragmatically. It makes more sense to kind of stick with one thing that's working and write all your music around that. Right. Well, especially
0: if, like you, you're actually good. That I feel like it's the acoustic guys like me who are, not that I do this again, but I talk to a lot of folks that are, if you're just going to play big chunky chords anyway on an acoustic and want them to have new types of resonances, try some open tunings. That's going to introduce whole new things. But if if you're a lead-focused guy, it's just like, you know, let's put some strange things on your
1: fingers (laughs) like that. Why don't you just not use your third finger for this song? Like, no, it's just confusing. It is sort of like, yeah, use what you have. Like if you have some ability to play around the instrument, you should probably not shoot yourself in the foot and change your tuning. So yeah, I guess that's part of it too. I agree with the resonance and, like, if you're going to play a lot of chords. I mean, the tuning that we've happened upon, it seems like some happenstance from different cultures clashing or something. I mean, who who even knows how we landed on this tuning? It's convenient for bar chords, but then, like, so inconvenient for other things. So there's definitely no one, there's no God above saying, like, this must be the way that the guitar is tuned.
0: If you're Dolly Parton and you have inch and a half long nails and you have to do open tuning so you can play only major chords because you just can't physically. I mean, yeah, priorities, you know? Yeah, of course, no minor chords then, but, you know, I I don't know how she would. Just don't hit certain strings. I'm sure there was a way of around that. There's definitely more about the structure and individual things with this tune, but we're going long here. Let's move to Coven by the latest Snarky Puppy album, Immigrants, Immigrants spelled not the way you would think 2019 i've made the mistake of misspelling that <laughs> is this right this, this is the first i didn't see you have a writing credit on anything earlier with this band
1: i, I wrote a song called fair play that's on i want to say it's the album the world's getting smaller it's one of the early ones but we didn't really play it live a lot because it just wasn't really the same kind of vibe It was like the sort of acoustic mellow thing that jazzier thing that didn't fit the live band so basically, functionally, this is the first song that I've written for a Snarky Puppy album.
0: Yeah. And so say a little about, before we hear it, about kind of, <laughs> do you demo it first and you pitch this to Michael? Did you think this was going to be a Snarky Puppy song? Did you write specifically for this band?
1: I actually started this song idea for Fork. I mean, the way that I write for things is usually just like either it's an idea that pops into my brain that I kind of get the idea down and then work on it later, or it's like, I sit down and bang my head against the wall for a week until I finally come up with a couple ideas that I don't hate. And this was one of those banging my head against the wall and making a thousand logic demos. And this was one of them that that seemed like it had potential. But at the time, I was working on the Fork album and I didn't finish it for that. So when it was time to write, so with Snarky Puppy, it's sort of like anyone is invited to write a song. But, you know, if you don't get it done in time for the album, like you didn't do it. So (laughs) I was like leading up to this Snarky Puppy recording session and I really wanted to get a song on the album. I kind of went back to this fork idea that didn't work out and started thinking about what it could be like in Snarky Puppy and changed a lot of it and added a lot. So, yeah, with Snarky Puppy, at least at this point in the band, just because we have so many people, there's only so much time in the studio. What happens is you basically like make a demo No one really reads music in the band. I mean, everyone can, but... Not even the horn players, really. Usually horns are arranged. There's like occasional things where we will, just for the sake of time in the studio, we'll write it out. But for the most part, I mean, everyone just likes to do it that way because it sort of feels like if you start reading music, it always stays, like at least for me and I think for a lot of people, it always stays there mentally. Like you can't really ever escape the page. But if you, the first time you ever hear an idea, you just hear it, then you kind of put it into your brain however you want and you interpret it differently so we like to do it that that way so it's just more felt and heard than read so yeah you kind of make a demo and everyone learns their part off the demo and for this recording session i brought it into like we bring it into Mike that way we can kind of like have a like a listen to it and see how it's going to work best with the band and he'll move some things around like not move things around but like suggest certain things or like say like maybe this should be played on this instrument instead of that instrument Because he has a really good sense of what's going to work for Snarky Puppy. That's a way of just making sure that we don't spend three days on a song that we don't have. Because we basically, for this album, it was like two songs a day. So the more you can arrange it ahead of time, the more likely it is that you're going to actually finish it. Well and with
0: so many people, I am surprised it's not more arranged. I mean if you've got three keyboards and yeah. three or four horns and
1: I mean it is pretty heavily arranged ahead of time. Yeah, there might be certain things where like maybe this melody should be on this instrument instead. But but as far as like the harmony, even beyond like it's not just, you know, A minor to B minor, or whatever, like it's gonna be like these four notes go to these four notes. Because it's just the way that I hear it, especially for simple harmony, for simple chords. I feel like it's just more satisfying to have very specific chord voicings with their own voice leading rather than like just kind of a blanket of what might just be like a 13th chord that has like every note in it. It's like just these three or four notes. It was pretty specific. The drum part was not incredibly specific. That was something that we kind of worked out together in the studio as we were building the song. But you knew it was going to be in 7-4. It was written that way. Yeah. I mean, I would say the basic, like, accents and pulse were set, but then, like, you know, the specific way in which that gets voiced on the drums and, like, what specific beat they're going to play was something that they, they developed, which usually works out better because they're amazing drummers and trying to write for a drummer is not always so successfully like sort of forced them to play something that is not as good as something they could come up with on their own.
0: So I was trying to remember. I almost went through the Nutcracker soundtrack. This
1: like I'm pretty damn sure, and I'm sure, and I'm sure you found it <laughs> because it's in there. Okay, all right. So that was yeah. No, no, you're not. You're not wrong. So I wrote that idea and i think actually the reason why i put it away in the first place was because i was like no that's definitely something that's not original but then i came back to it and i couldn't think of what it was we did this entire recording session i kept going around to every member of the band and like justin stanton is someone who's listened to a lot of classical music and i was like justin what is this song this is something no one could think of what it was so usually when that happens that's like okay well i guess i'm in the clear then i guess i just wrote something great if no one can think of what this thing is and it sounds like something already but then, of course, yeah, like it's fine. It's like it's like having, oh, I played something that sounds a little like the Jaws theme because it goes uh, uh,
0: like it's just a half step. It's true. there's nothing I th- <laughs> it's- I think it,
1: yeah, for my personal musical sensibility, it is actually a little bit too close just because it shouldn't remind you of that unless it is purposefully doing that. And I would not say the song is purposefully doing that, but I guess you could say that it is just an homage. it's just a a motif, and also like. That song is very old and definitely in the public domain, so I guess it doesn't really matter either way.
0: <laughs> the way it's arranged and the way it's engineered, I don't know, I, like the Gil Evans thing that you mentioned, like that kind of pokes through a little more of me, just the way...
1: Is it flugelhorns? I know there's flute on top of it. Is that right? There's flute, there's bass flute, bass clarinet, and flugelhorns. And then when they actually move
0: on to doing the real melody, let me play a minute and 30 in...
1: So then its keyboard takes over the, the underlying, is that right? Yeah, I actually envisioned that as a keyboard melody to begin with. And that was one of the things that Mike and the rest of the band kind of like had their say in how it got arranged. Which I actually like, the vibe that it creates. But yeah, I imagine that being like a analog synth line, basically.
0: Well, and introducing that part as, okay, here's the real melody. It makes the other, the Nutcracker part more like... That's part of the groove. That's not like, we're not resting the song on that. It's
1: just a thing. I guess that, that makes it more okay. It is part of the groove. <laughs> and, and after the initial first two chords, I think it does different stuff than the Nutcracker does. So, you know, whatever.
0: But that, da, 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 like, so that
1: was, again, like in the
0: initial conception of the song, are you, you're writing this with your brain? <laughs> and then coming up with the main dual harmony on that, like that's part of the demo idea, not something from one of the horn players, say.
1: Oh yeah, no, that's that was the melody, and then yeah, it's kind of all about like that melody interacting with the um, boo, like motif in the background that they kind of play with each and other. And a bunch of
0: weird ass keyboard stuff, a bunch of psychedelic like. And a, are you even? I hear a little guitar, like the-
1: Yeah, there's some little, there's some atmospheric textures. Yeah, so the idea with this song was to create the imagery of being kind of lost in a scary forest. So kind of wanted to create like mysterious sounds coming from different directions and kind of feeling jumpy and paranoid, but also like kind of like the cool underlying calmness of a forest. That's sort of what all those textures are about. And for, yeah, a lot of that was just people having their own open interpretation about what that would be. It's basically the melody, that specific motif. Do, 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 do. that thing that happens and then the bass line is also very specific That actually the, that's how I first started writing the song was off the bass line well I guess the Nutcracker thing and then the bass line and how those interact so those three things kind of have like a rhythmic interaction and then the rest of it is just atmospheric texture that is up to the musicians essentially
0: and then we got this new part so about 156 in it almost sounds like here we're going to do 4-4 four, four for a little bit uh, <laughs> yeah. this guitar driven part which, like, that's a strong enough riff. That could have been, you know, the scaffolding for a whole song. But it's just, you throw
1: it out there, and then it kind of dissolves. It's weird how that happened, because in the uh, process of banging my head against the wall to try to make this song work, that was one of my versions, was like, this is the riff for the song. I kind of imagined it being like, yeah, like, this is the riff that, that the crowd could sing along to tune, whatever, and, like, maybe even, like, stop, and we, like, clap and sing. And then the more I thought about it, the more I just, like, hated that whole idea... Did not like that. It's a little too simple, to be honest. For a, a band like Snarky Puppy, there's too many musicians on stage for, like, such a simple idea, I think, to be, like, to carry it. I don't really write a lot of songs that have just, like, a little moment of something that never comes back. But for some reason, that just worked with this arrangement. It was, like, you just want a little bit of something that, like, changes the mood. And in my conception, I like to write... For instrumental music, I like to write stories sometimes specific sometimes not incredibly specific but like the feeling of like you're what you know you're kind of lost in this forest and then this sounds weird but for some reason what came to mind with this section was like a prayer like sending up a prayer to the gods or god or nature or whatever to like help you find your way and then you kind of go back to being lost but then by the end of the song you do find your way so like it doesn't actually connect musically thematically but i felt like vibe wise somehow in the story it does and for some reason it works i don't know
0: yeah let's play one more section here yet another new guitar part that's now going to be the foundation for a whole lot of soloing for a while comes in at about 405 That sounds like the you've got the octaver back,
1: is that right? Uh actually no, that's Bob Lanzetti's playing the same part an octave down. Gotcha. I he's got I can't remember now, he had some sort of interesting sound happening, which maybe is contributing to that like affectiness, but um but yeah, no, it's just me playing in the regular octave and him playing an octave down. We have enough guitar players, we don't even need octave pedals, it's just we all actually need more jobs to do.
0: So yeah, this part, it warms up and it's got that, I associate with Pat Metheny, but that kind of more typical of snarky puppy than of fork, fusion cords, warm part that, so where what is happening in the story? That sounds like you're already now safe at home or something, <laughs> or found a nice cave in the forest.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like, yeah, basically, I feel like that is coming home, whether that's already being home or coming home or... Uh-huh. dying, going to heaven. It could be a lot of different things, but um, but it does feel like you, you've kind of like broken through and now you're into some other thing. So even though that was kind of the conclusion of the plot, like this is only... <laughs> yeah, we're only you halfway know, there. A little,
0: yeah, we're only halfway into the
1: song. You got a solo.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I also envisioned this section as being a, a loop. The initial idea had that F minor chord, which is the only chord that's not extremely in the key. As happening even less often, like every other time, but it kind of felt like, all right, that's enough B major. Let's get some more interesting harmony happening. So happening, so it happens like every fourth chord basically, and it was written around the bass line, like those chords, just kind of like thick mellotron string chords. And again, like they're very specific voicings. Like there's two E majors that happen, but they have like slightly different voicings. Um, one of is more like C sharp minor over E, and there is a slight difference between like the phrasing of the first part and the second part. But yeah, it's mostly about the bass line and how those chords fit over the bass line, and it felt like kind of a drone loop thing that could happen and kind of, like, carry you out. Drummer can solo. It can kind of, like, feel like you're just, like, flying off into the clouds. So it made sense in a way that you would also solo and kind of hang out on that melody for a while. The melody started off as a string... In my mind, it was a string melody that was a little simpler, and that was one of the things that changed. Like, I brought it to Mike, and he suggested, like, you know, maybe doesn't have to be so straight because it was like and all those little fast things that happen you know were something that i added after he suggested there was more like a little more complicated stuff and it's kind of cool to have like what we call like a soli, which is more than one person in the van playing a complicated melody together so it's kind of like one of those moments like a almost like a jazz solely happening and like you said pamathini makes sense definitely is in that realm i've also listened to a lot of kurt rosenwinkle rosenwinkle mark turner Playing old, like melodies together, I think it's probably very reminiscent of that stuff too.
0: Well, I saw, I think on one of the live versions that that part is actually taken over by violin as one of the parallel violin and guitar together, probably.
1: And I don't think that's on the record. I think maybe he recorded it, and then it was, you know, in the mixing process, it was decided this should be the vibe. But yeah, that was my initial thought. It was like, string part, of course. And when he's around, so so Zach Brock is the violin player, and he's not on every gig. So, you know, it's just one of those things where if he's around, he plays it, and if he's not, then it's voiced some other way. And that happens a lot in the band, where, like, based on who's actually present, we'll change who plays what melody is kind of on the spot. Like, oh, I see that there's only two horn players, so I'll I'll play this horn melody that needs to be a little stronger, or... There's only one or two keyboard players, so I'll play this chord part that needs to be stronger.
0: So given that it was Snarky Puppy, is it still, in terms of the final arrangement, does it feel sort of fundamentally different than, well, Fork he was in as well, but like, you know, that, okay, now Michael is directing the final arrangement bits, or do you, as the songwriter, sort of get... Oh, this is a different role for me in this band, even as the song is progressing.
1: Oh yeah, I mean definitely the the latter. I mean probably both, but definitely the latter. I kind of have to know what I'm writing for when I write. I mean sometimes there's little melodies that come and you're like, oh, this just sounds cool, and I'll just make a little voice recorder. But like I can't really finish a song unless I know what it's for. There's so many directions to go in. I feel like you have to write for the musicians. So yeah, when I write for Fork, I'm like imagining the musicians playing it i'm imagining them hearing it for the first time and whether or not they're going to think it's cool and whether or not they're going to feel like they can play it in a way that is meaningful when i'm writing for snarky puppy you know same thing i'm like what are the horn players going to do what are all the keyboard players going to do percussion there's just so much in the band if you don't think of their roles then it's like inevitably even if it's a cool song it's never going to feel like a snarky puppy song because those roles just never got fleshed out Mm mm-hmm so, yeah, absolutely. As soon as I started thinking of this as a Snarky Puppy song, I started imagining what everyone in the band was going to be doing and trying to get pretty specific about that.
0: I'll direct folks through the blog post associated with this episode on the website to some of your other projects that are going. I was just watching today some Bocante, so that was also a Michael project. It actually seems like it's a pretty similar you know, methodology of structuring a whole bunch of musicians playing together, but just you know, with a, a lot of different players, world music influences, singing, Uh, But, you know, in terms of like three
1: guitars (laughs) or four guitars doing things in a coordinated manner. Right, Right. Yeah, that's Mike's newest project and definitely one that he puts a lot of time and energy into for sure. It is similar in that way, or at least objectively. Yeah, there's like a lot of musicians on stage. I think from the writing perspective, it's a lot more like riff and groove oriented. So even more so than Snarky Puppy, I'm like a member of the rhythm team and I'm playing my part and even if you're improvising a little bit within that you're like you're staying structured within your role and it's you know and there's a singer which uh, you know lead singer changes the essential nature of I think how you play in a band compared to Snarky Puppy so we're going to end by listening to Strut by Foe Destroyer which I know Danny Garcia is
0: singing lead but you're singing co-lead it's kind of a co-lead kind of song yeah you're not pulling out an occasional vocal on fork to make it, you know, more like fish, more, more,
1: uh, connect with that. I don't think anyone wants, (laughs) (laughs) I, it's, it's such a different thing to add vocals to a band. You have to really envision it. I don't think fork is that kind of band, but I do like singing and you know, it's something that I toyed with and may in the future get back to Oh, and before we get out of here, I know you've also done a lot of
0: session work. What else are you working on these days? I know you said you were working toward a solo album sometime this year.
1: Yeah, I am in between all you know the bands that I'm involved with. I'm, I try to stay working on that. I have several different ideas about how that could happen. And that's uh, part of what's taken me a long time is I have too many different ideas about how that should happen. But yeah, that's something that I would like to do. You know, I started... My first few years of guitar playing were writing and singing and recording on a four track at my house. So that's like been a big part of like my whole musical approach deep down as like a thing that I would like to do. So that's my long term goal. I don't know when it's going to happen, but hopefully within like the next year or so, I would be at least starting to record that. I also do, I make iPhone apps. I have two apps out. One of them is called Guitar Note Atlas, which is guitar scales, the fretboard, arpeggios, intervals, like basically any group of notes that you want to see in any key, you can see in any position. And then there's one called Set App, which is for making set lists. And they're both just ideas that I had that I was really into. And I've, I've done programming here and there, uh, especially for the web. I'm constantly kind of trying to find time to work on those and update them and eventually get them on Android, but for now they're on iPhone. So that's the thing I'm also super into. And does the former app have alternate tuning (laughs) things so you can... It does not, and that would be the next level. That would be something that I would add to it whenever I get enough time to make a new version. It does have bass. It has like left hand, and you can make it go upside down. But no, there's no alternate tunings right now. Anything else in terms of the
0: session sideman work we did? I mean, was that mostly concentrated years and years ago, or are you still active in that way?
1: Um, no, I do a lot of session stuff. Sometimes in New York, I just went up and recorded with uh, Banda Magda, which is another group in the ground-up kind of family of musicians. If you don't know her, her name is Magda, and the band is Banda Magda, and she's a Greek singer, and accordion player, and arranger, composer, and totally amazing. Sings in a bunch of different languages cinematic beautiful and just went up and recorded with her and then i also recorded in austin at home a lot so yeah all of that i do uh i do a lot of arranging like i was saying the string quartet stuff i do some lesson teaching you know a little bit of everything like a lot of musicians
0: gotta hustle gotta get (laughs) you do to make a
1: piece together to especially you know especially since they took away any money that anyone made (laughs) off of recordings (laughs) Definitely have to hustle now.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Here again is uh, Strut by Faux Destroyer. So this is the thing that Oh so Closo evolved into. Uh, do you want to say just a little bit specifically about this before we get out of here?
1: Yeah. This song started off as Danny Garcia and I, who's the lead singer, jamming. And he was on drums. I was on guitar and just sort of freely jamming. And then at some point it was like, oh, stop and play that again. And kind of had this riff that... For me, like it's got this like relationship between the bass and the chord rhythmically that's super cool and almost reminds me of like a Michael McDonald kind of like feel, but in like a raw indie guitar way. So that's the origin of this. And then Danny came up with this awesome vocal melody and this really awesome synth melody that Cade Sadler, who's the third person in the band, played. As it progressed, Danny. And I decided to put some strings on it, so I arranged those and they kind of interact rhythmically also with the guitar solo that happens at the end. The other cool thing about this song is that I up until this point I had always written out my guitar solos ahead of time for for rock bands just because I, like I said, I was super into Brian May and I was just like I want like the perfect perfectly crafted guitar solo, which I think is cool. but for this we were recording it and Jason Cup, who's the producer engineer, and the other guys in the band were just like, just play a solo. We know you can improvise. I was like, I really don't want to. I want to craft a perfect solo. It's not going to be good enough. And then we like, did a few takes. And I think this is almost all one take. There's probably a couple little moments that we grabbed from other ones. But like, a lot of it was just kind of like right there. And it was cool. It was like, oh, I can actually improvise in a rock band, which uh, came out better than I thought it would. Without going straight to the Chuck Berry riffs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I can't do those. All right. Thanks so much for doing this. Here's Strut. Thank you. so much to Chris. That was a fun one. Hooked me into a very cool fusion scene that I really wasn't that aware of. Though I'd love in the future to get John Medeski or Martin Orwood or the bassist Victor Wooten or Bella Fleck, the banjo player that I saw Victor play with. I do have some fond memories of this kind of music, just not really up-to-date ones. Again, you can learn more about Chris's various projects and even hear, for instance, the early songs that he arranged for his college jazz group at chrismcqueen.com. And we didn't actually get to play any of that band, Oh So Close, that so we talked about at the beginning, but I'd really recommend that. So look them up. That album is very, very good. Now, I hope if you have not already subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast, you do so. Look us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, maybe leave a rating or review at one of those places. That would be very helpful. And of course, the headquarters for the podcast is NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Or for you folks that like to financially support the things that you enjoy, Patreon.com slash Nakedly Music. My next episode will be with Matt Wilson, a very interesting singer-songwriter, long-time veteran of the Minneapolis scene. Great melodies, great lyrics, now playing with a banjo player and a harpist. So don't miss that. My most recent interview was with Steve Harley of Cockney Rebel fame, who were in the 70s, a much bigger deal overseas than they ever were in the U.S. He might be best known here as the original Phantom of the Opera, in that he did the first recordings for that with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Sarah Brightman, though he was never actually in the stage production. Anyway, his 70s group, Cockney Rebel, is very much like Roxy Music, another one of my favorites from that era. And that is the first of three older British guys whose work I've long admired, who I reached out to. But I won't tell you who the others are until I actually record them. I hope you're all staying healthy and listening to a lot of podcasts. If you're cooped up avoiding the virus... Maybe it's a good time to try writing a song. I'll see if I can follow my own advice in that respect. In any case, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark brunson signing off.